In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, we're in the midst of a a series that we've been preaching through, reading scriptures through, teaching a class through, being in DNA groups through. Uh, Over the the next uh, few weeks, uh, in the midst of this series called Living a Sacramental Life. Uh, In the first week, a couple weeks ago, Matt uh, gave us uh, our first axiom, um, essentially, of, of a sacramental life, which is that life is all about communion. It's all about divine union uh, with God and communion with one another. Uh, and last week, we talked about the next one that kind of builds on that, which is that God, this God who has restored communion is always present and at work in every circumstance of our lives. And this week, we want to build on that and uh, talk about this God who is present and at work in our lives, who has restored communion. Uh, what's he like? What is this God like? Who, what's his character like? Who is this God? We want to proclaim this, that this God is just like Jesus, that Jesus shows us exactly what God is like. In the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of who God has always been and always will be. Not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out for us. Not a tyrant who comes to dominate, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. Jesus is the true and final picture of who God is and the pattern of our life together in the Spirit. So friends, gaze upon him today. Drink him in today. Allow the light of his face to dispel the old images and reveal who God really is for you today. Amen? Uh, In J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series... I feel like every other connecting story is from Harry Potter for me. Um, Yes, Carlo, thank you. Hallelujah. Uh, So in in her series, Harry, um, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but you've had time uh, to read this. I think the last book came out 15 years ago. I don't know. You've had time. So J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series, Harry is the hero, in case you haven't read it, in case you're not familiar. He's a young wizard. He's attending wizarding school. And uh, one of his teachers is named Severus Snape. Just sounds like a bad guy, right? Uh, Severus Snape, and Snape is a constant thorn in Harry's side throughout his career at this wizarding school. Snape seems to be out to get Harry at every turn. And eventually things turn significantly darker. He's not just a teacher who's grumpy, but he actually turns about to be a spy for Lord Voldemort, who's the baddie, the bad guy in the series. And he's been spying and uh, causing great harm to Harry and his friends this whole time. And Harry learns of this, and just his hatred for Snape is so strong. He just hates this person who has betrayed uh, Dumbledore and betrayed his friends and um, has been this thorn in Harry's side this whole time. It seems that his whole vision of who he thought Snape was was confirmed um, when this comes to light. And in the final chapters of of the whole series, book seven of the series, everything is moving towards a final battle between those who are loyal to Dumbledore and those who are, have pledged allegiance to Lord Voldemort. And um, it, it looks like it's going to come down to you know, Harry versus Voldemort. And Voldemort, in the, in the process of coming to this final battle, realizes that in order to wield the power of this very powerful magic wand, he has to kill Snape. And so he does so. He has his pet snake, Nagini, uh, kill Snape, just bite, bite him several times, and, and he leaves him there um, to bleed uh, to bleed out and to die on the floor. So Voldemort leaves, and Harry arrives, actually, as Snape is dying. 
And without knowing why, Harry walks over to this man that he hates, and uh, Snape sees him and grabs him, grabs Harry by the, by the collars of his robe, the front of his robes, his school robes, and he says, uh, take it. This terrible gurgling rasp comes out of his voice, and he says, take it. And Harry's not sure what he means until there's a silvery kind of liquidy kind of thing coming out, smoky, liquidy kind of thing coming out of Snape's eyes and out of his ears. And what those are, Harry realizes, oh, these are memories that Snape is extracting from his own mind. He's extracting these memories, and he wants Harry to look at them before he dies. So Harry collects them in a flask, and um, during a, and Snape dies. Um, after he collects these memories. And in the story, the way that you review, the way that you see these memories that have been collected, these things that look like a silvery, smoky, kind of liquidy thing, is you pour them into a little bowl, a special bowl called a pensive. A pensive, where you pour those things in and then you put your face into the bowl and you're able to see the memories that this other person has extracted from their own mind. Does that make sense? Again, it's, it's a magic world. You know, we, we kind of make up these things, right? So, so Harry, in a reprieve from the fighting... Harry goes to Dumbledore's office, and he, he pours the memories, these memories that Snape has given him, he pours them into this, into this pensive and uh, puts his face in there, and he decides that I'm going to look at what Snape wanted me to see. And through the memories that he sees, Harry realizes that he's been completely mistaken about Snape. Instead of being his nemesis at the school and an agent of Voldemort, he learns that Snape, because of his great love for his, own, for his mother, for Harry's mother, that Snape has been protecting Harry this whole time. That he has been acting as a double agent against Voldemort the entire time. And as Harry sees these events from Snape's past, he learns that where he had assumed that Snape was absent or actually working against him, he learns, actually, he was working for me. He was protecting me. He was guiding me this whole time. Through the memories that he sees in the pensive, Harry discovers that his assumptions about Snape had been completely wrong. He, th he thought Snape hated him as much as he hated Snape, when in fact Snape cared deeply for him and was constantly putting himself in danger to protect Harry. Harry thought he knew who Snape was, but he learned the truth was far different, even though he thought he could see what was happening and interpret what was going on there. And I think the way we view God works in a very similar way. We all carry around a picture of who we think God is, what he must be like. These pictures and impressions come to us from things our parents told us, things that preachers have told us. Um, they come from the way that we were treated by authorities and the stories we told about those things that had happened to us. They come from stories we tell ourselves when bad things happen to us. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening? God must be punishing me. God must be punishing them. We tell a lot of stories that imply God's character in a way that we don't always uh, completely conscious of. Sometimes we're just reading through the Bible innocently, like a Christian is supposed to do, right? And we come across a passage where God seems to be slaughtering people. <laughs> and we think, what in the world is going on here? How are we to interpret this? And so because of these things, many of us carry around a picture of a God who doesn't care who's uninvolved, a God who loses his temper, perhaps, a God who lashes out when he doesn't get his way, perhaps, or maybe just a God who's out to get us like Harry was out to get Snape, or how Harry assumed God was, uh, Snape was out to get him. And this is important because the God we imagine is the God we live with, period. 
The God we imagine is the God we live with, for good or for ill. So if we imagine a cranky God, even if it's not true, that's our experience of God. And it's also important because the God we imagine is the God we imitate, for good or for ill. And in our reading from Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing from prison to this fledgling church, this little church that was struggling to get going. And on, a, on, on the occasion, it seems to be that they were experiencing some opposition from the Roman authorities. They were experiencing some suffering and some internal uh, fighting, perhaps, was going on. And I can imagine that for a community that's small, that's oppressed, that is uh, being persecuted, that's experiencing trouble internally, in the midst of such tensions, I can imagine it would be easy to ask questions about, how is God really present here? Is he really with us? Wouldn't he be doing something different than what we see him doing? Why are we still suffering? Why is Paul in prison? Why do we keep having so many problems in our church? And into these tensions, Paul urges them, hey, don't be embarrassed by my imprisonment. And don't be shocked and upset at your own suffering. Because disciples of Jesus oftentimes find themselves in trouble. Because <laughs> Jesus oftentimes found himself in trouble. And so don't be shocked about that. And to illustrate, he describes in this great poem, this shocking journey of Jesus, this Messiah that they follow, who being, the, although he was in the very nature, he was God. He defied our expectations by emptying himself, by pouring himself out, by making himself nothing, by taking all the advantages he could have grabbed as God and saying, no, I, 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 I don't need these. He pours himself out as God, and then as man, he humbles himself in obedience all the way to death on a cross, which the shame of that would have been more devastating than the pain for people in that day. And so this shocking journey that Jesus takes, Paul tells them, he, he reminds them that this is, this is the God that they serve. The reason it's shocking is that, God, that Jesus isn't behaving as a God we would expect. This is not the God they expected. <laughs> this isn't the God that they expected Jesus to bring to them. They, and we, I think, assumed that God, right, is powerful, assertive, grasping, dominant, controlling, kicking butt, taking names. This is who we imagine God to be. We expect and often want a God who will use his status to his own advantage and ours. Thank you. A God who will make our suffering go away and make our enemies pay. A God who will throw his weight around and dominate others. A God who's going to help us get rid of these bad guys, whoever they might be. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, in contrast to all of these ideas that we had about God, the shocking revelation is that Jesus shows us what God is really like as he empties himself, as he pours himself out, as he makes himself nothing, as he humbles himself and becomes a servant of all, dying for his enemies. And this self-emptying that Jesus does, this humiliation that he undergoes, is not just a temporary thing that he does and then he gets back to being God. It's not like, okay, I'm going to take care of a problem here and then I'm going to get back to kicking butt and taking names. No, this is the permanent revelation of who God is. It's Jesus on the cross. That's our picture. It's the permanent revelation, the eternal picture of how God has always been. It's like Jesus said to his disciples, 
Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I'm in the Father. The Father's in me. Whatever I'm doing is revealing what my Father is doing and who my Father is. And yes, he is now exalted to the highest place, as the passage says. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that's not something different than the self-emptying and the self-humbling. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that this Jesus, the crucified one, is Lord. No other Jesus. This Jesus, the crucified one, is Lord. There is a continuity between the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. Jesus remains the crucified one even in his resurrection. Jesus remains the humble servant even now in his exaltation. And he shows us that this is what God is like. What Paul is saying is that the cross of Jesus is not just one revelation of God among many, but the definitive revelation. After the cross, all other understandings of who God is must be relativized and seen as idolatrous, unhelpful, not fully true. Now that we see Jesus on the cross, we know who God is. Jesus shows us what God is really like. In other words, friends, we have a pensive, if you will, through which we can see God's memories. We have a way for us to see what's really going on in those past experiences that have hurt us. It's Jesus. Jesus is our pensive if I can put it that way. Through him, we see what was really happening the whole time in our lives. Through him, we see what's really going on. In the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of this God. He's been working to protect us and guide us the whole time. He has cared more deeply for us than we could have possibly imagined. Jesus shows us this God who has been and always will be, not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out for us. Not a tyrant who comes to dominate, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. Jesus is not only the true and final picture of who God is, but his life is also now the pattern for our life together in the Spirit. That's it. God is just like Jesus. God has always been just like Jesus. There was never a time that God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Now we do. This is who our God is. This is what he's like. So how do we respond to this, friends? First of all, let us imitate Christ, pouring ourselves out for one another, humbling ourselves to serve one another. The whole point that Paul is making in Philippians uh, is not just to point out facts about who Christ is, but to encourage the Philippian church to imitate who Christ is, not to get brownie points with God, but so that we can participate in this life. We are invited into the very life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as we imitate Christ. Jesus shows us what God is really like, but at the same time, he shows us what it's like to be really human. In showing us what God is like, he shows us what it is to be truly human. And God, Jesus doesn't just show us either. He actually creates a way for us to join him in that life that he has with his Father through the Holy Spirit. So we don't just imitate him from afar and hope we're doing a good job and we get a gold star on our report card. No. As we imitate Christ, we actually touch the life of God. That's actually what's happening. We're actually communing with the Holy as we imitate Christ. It's stepping into 
a new way of life, a new way of seeing everything. So that's the first way we'll respond. Humble yourself. Take the role of a servant. To do so is to be like Christ. And to be like Christ is to participate in God's life and to become one with God. And to become one with God is to become truly human. So friends, I can say it this way. Be human like God is human. Be human like God is human. God remains a human. Jesus Christ. And he's with us. This is eternal life. This is how we work out our salvation. So where have you been holding back? Where do you have an opportunity to experience this life of God by pouring yourself out, humbling yourself to serve? Again, not to get brownie points with God, but to participate in life. Because it oftentimes doesn't feel that way, does it? It oftentimes feels like it's risky if I'm going to step out and humble myself, empty myself. I need to hold on to my status. I need to make sure I don't get embarrassed. Where is God calling you to pour out your life? And in so doing, you'll participate. You'll touch the very life of God. So that's the first thing. Second thing is uh, let's touch God's life here now in prayer. This is the opportunity we have in prayer. Again, prayer isn't just uh, throwing words up into the heavens and hoping they stick. Prayer is communing with the God who is present with us. So let's do that together today, gazing on Jesus, asking him to remove these false images that we have of God. Let's ask Jesus to be, in other words, our pensive today. Let's look into the pensive that Jesus is and see God's memories and see God's thoughts toward us, see the way that God is for us. And let's allow Jesus today to overrule every other picture All the stuff we've inherited from our upbringing, all the stuff we thought we were seeing when we read the Bible, all the stuff that we assumed God was doing when tragedy struck our family, when our grandma wasn't healed, we prayed a long time for her, when our dad died, when our family lost everything because of an ice raid, when we lost our job, when we got punished for telling the truth, when the depression and the anxiety won't go away, when the chronic pain just gets worse. Let's pray that Jesus would free us from all the stories we tell ourselves about who God is for us in those moments and instead allow the cross of Christ to show us that God is indeed present with us in these things and participating in our sufferings with us. Because of the cross of Christ, one of the things I think of when I make the sign of the cross, every time I make the sign of the cross, I am affirming that now God is eternally connected and participating in the suffering of every living thing. Let's allow that vision to override all the stories we tell ourselves. And then we'll pray and we'll come to the altar and we'll receive the life of Jesus, his body and blood in bread and wine. Friends, in the cross, Jesus shows us the fullness of who God has always been and always will be. Not a despot who uses his status to his own advantage, but a father who pours himself out for us. Not a tyrant who comes to dominate us, but a servant who humbles himself and dies for his enemies. Jesus is the true and final picture of who God is and the pattern for our life together in the Spirit. Friends, gaze upon him. Drink him in and allow the light of his face to dispel the old images and reveal who God is for you today. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.